it is Wednesday, December 16th, when we're recording this. We're off our usual game because we have to get a bunch in before the holidays, but this is your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. This is Emmett, and I'm joined here by my co-host, John. And today we're going to talk about social media. We've been teasing a social media episode since I think like the fourth or fifth episode or something like that. And I eventually got a wild hair up my ass while watching The Social Dilemma after not sleeping for an entire night. Uh, And uh, I was like, John, I don't care what we were planning on doing. We're (laughs) doing this now. And we're also going to talk about the documentary We Live in Public and the strange figure of Josh Harris. But before that, we need to pour one out for a real one. This month, at the end of this month... Flash player dies. Yeah, no longer supported after December 31st, by which time you're hearing this will already be gone. Yeah, it might be kind of nice just to reflect shortly before we jump into this, especially like Flash was important for me, I think, in terms of how I first experienced the internet. It was, I feel like it was like, I mean, I was on the internet before in elementary school to like, I don't know, look up anime facts or something but then like in middle school is when I got on Newgrounds and like had friends telling me like oh yeah you got to watch crab battle or something Gross. which we can put in the show notes yeah, what it's is on. it like stickdeath.com was like yeah one. <laughs> happy tree friends dude um, yeah there's all sorts of I mean star runner yeah I was about to say the strong bad thing is I think probably the most enduring piece of content from that era that guy has a successful YouTube channel now yeah, I heard he still makes them in Flash and just puts them up on YouTube now. So still going strong. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is also the days of um, Maddox. Yeah. Who's also like a woke YouTube guy now. I heard that. That's so that's that's weird. I've, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of people that I knew like back in the day. And it's funny now, like someone will bring them up and they'll be like, yeah, they're like a guy on Twitter now. And like utterly different from anything you knew Mm -hmm. of them (laughs) totally like weird but it was interesting i was talking to a friend about it today and he was saying that while he had some issues with the way that it worked technically what it brought to the table was like it was an animation tool which was very easy to prototype animations and test code and it kind of opened the door in a lot of ways for a bunch of completely amateur people to get involved and like just make stuff and most of it i think you could categorize as like stupid and funny yeah there's a whole type of whimsy yeah it was a part of that was like juvenile and absurd you know part of the big amateur spirit yeah a lot of it hasn't aged well yeah some of it's still pretty funny i watched some videos today from and i was like i was still laughing at these they're like funny in a in an old and deep way yeah definitely but um yeah that it was an interesting part of all that stuff. And, you know, it predates what we're about to talk about in a big way. Probably my first social experiences on the internet were like the comment section of Newgrounds stuff or like, you know, whatever their forums were and just talking about, I don't know, like some flash thing about Mario being gay. I, there was a lot of weird <laughs> stuff. And you know what I mean? Like there's a really bizarre, like, 
because I used to watch all of the like well-rated flash videos on new grounds, but I would get so bored that I would start digging to the bottom of the barrel and just like finding the shittiest stuff. And I have these moments in a weird place. Yeah. I have these moments at um, like, who's the guy that plays the, the Android in Blade Runner is it Rutger Hauer. Mm-hmm. I have all these Rutger Hauer moments from them. It's like very much <laughs> like tears in the rain, like things that were, um, friend of the pod eric vote who made our logo he and i used to watch that stuff together all the time and there's one i've never been able to find it it's some claymation thing and it's these two guys being stupid and talking to each other about a salad while they get sniped and one guy's just like you're dead dave you're dead can i have your salad like it doesn't make any sense but that is like in my brain forever maybe a helpful listener will send that yeah in. please send it my way if you can find <laughs> but i think it would be um sort of interesting to give a brief sketch of like how we got into all this stuff i know you had live journal i never did um i don't feel like i even knew that much about it for a long time mm-hmm. i don't know i didn't have many real friends for a while so but you know, I posted on forums and stuff, and then I would have like friends on MSN Messenger and AIM, and that was a whole other thing that we could talk about some other time. Totally, I used to I used to harass. So my first AOL screen name was Emo Viber, <laughs> capital E, capital V. <laughs> I'll let that sit in for a second while I take a sip of coffee. <laughs> and I used to. This is back when I had a Hotmail account, and. I was like 12. I was in sixth grade. I'd found, I was really into drawing. I'd found web comics, which were totally new then and becoming this thing. And they had their own forum communities and this, that, or the other. And one of the guys I was really into was a young man from Canada named uh, Brian O'Malley. And I used to bother him. I'd send him, dude, it's so cringy. I would like send him poems I'd written. <laughs> like why? Who knows? Like this dude's like 25 or something at this point, you know? And I'm just like obsessed with him and like <laughs> messaging him on AIM. And at some point he just like stops responding because he's like, doesn't want to talk to a 14 year old. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> but what's crazy is that Brian O'Malley created Scott Pilgrim. Oh. And all this, you know, and it's now gone on to do other things that are matched in that level of success. And like, I remember when he was just starting out, he released his first graphic novel, Lost at Sea, which I loved. I worked in a comic shop. You know, for me, it was very much an art experience. I was on like Mm. forums for like artist communities that were in California. You know, because there was nothing going on in my town. Mm. And the internet was a place where you could have a pseudo community of that. And then I got LiveJournal. And that was huge. Like, that's the first experience towards social media for me. Like, there's this whole forgotten history of, you know, MySpace didn't really exist yet. Blogs were actually really hard to use. Um, Yeah, like blogging as a phenomenon was still like not happening yet it was so clunky i remember getting one at like 13 and not being able to figure out how it worked yeah you know i mean now it's way more intuitive you put the thing in there and then you hit publish like that's what i thought it would be and that's what live journal was and you used to have to have an access code to get in there so i had a dead journal for a while first which was open source and for anybody 
And that's really, honestly, I had a friend who I met later, way later in my life, like my mid twenties and, you know, we're peers. I think I might be a little bit older than him. And we're talking about experiences, the internet and who we are. And I was like, yeah, I had a live journal. I used to update it obsessively, like blah, blah, blah. You know, I was sort of like the record keeper for a whole group of friends, you know? And he said, yeah, that's probably why you have a distinctive writing voice at this point, because you were used to generating for a public mm-hmm. at like a really early age and figuring out how to navigate that. And that's true. You know, I went through my old live journal. I still have it. I am for sure not going to tell anybody anything about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's amazing because most of that stuff has been deleted now. Like, unless I saved some pictures too. Like, I went through the whole thing. I went, I read it uh, back when I was talking to you and Mike. I went Mm. for the first time on IRC. I went through and read it and like um, destroyed myself by somatically re experiencing my entire adolescence because it spanned from the summer before high school to the summer before college. Mm. so it's really like the whole the whole enchilada you know like uh that's that and that was my experience of what would become social media i remember when myspace dropped i kind of got one it was sort of for people younger than me i felt at that point uh my brother was on myspace he's like four years younger than me then facebook dropped and it got open to high schoolers right before i hopped into college and of course Facebook totally changed the college experience. Uh, you couldn't tag people in photos early on, but I just remember, dude, like having a digital camera was crucial. You know, and I went to like an arts college, right? Mm. So you'd have like the drunk art house like photos of literally every single thing that happened during a party and like everybody would wait for them to drop and like hung over, you'd like click through and look at like every single photo. It was like perfect narcissistic, like nasal, navel gazing, self-mythologizing, early 20s art school shit. Like perfect <laughs> for that. And I'm, I'm sure we're not the only ones that did that. You know, it just happened to be really good for that environment. And it is clear now when I look back that this stuff was obviously starting to retool and reshape social life but it felt imperceptible at the time a because it was new so it's hard to understand what the consequences of something are going to be and b because it just felt like an improved version of stuff that i was already used to you know you had friends on live journal you had a feed on live journal you would post pictures there you know there were people who were the people who had cameras and had figured out how to upload stuff to photo bucket in an efficient way and knew enough coding to put them in a live journal post. Right. So I, we, I was used to that. I understood that. And then a few iterations of Facebook down the way and Twitter suddenly developing blue check marks and the algorithm becoming a thing that we learn about or whatever. And the whole data and privacy aspect, because all of this is happening as the war on terror is unfolding, you know, starts to change the shape of the internet and the way we consume media. And that's where we are now. And that's sort of what this episode is going to be about. But that is a capsule version of my memory of the trajectory of some of this stuff is that it started with being a kid with a dial up modem 
loading frames of online comics like 10 seconds at a time, IMing various artists I liked with my shitty uh, AOL handle. And, you know, like just fucking around and it feeling like a secluded experience from the adult world. And now it is the adult world. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if I, I had slightly a more Philistine experience. Uh, my uh, comic forum was like Super Mario fan site based. And I learned how to make web comics and MS Paint, which is like horrible stuff, um, just by like figuring it out. And I like emailed them to the webmaster and he was like, these are great. I'll put them up. And I was like, whoa, I'm like on the internet now. Dude, that's I, awesome. That's a beautiful I, experience. I don't even remember how old I was, but I started to feel like I was kind of a big deal. And so I started like talking so much shit to people on the forums and then causing like huge drama or whatever. And then like, so apologetically emailing him, like, man, you really gave me a shot. And like, I'm sorry that I'm causing so much shit for you. Like, <laughs> and then I eventually just abandoned it. Cause I made too many people mad at me. I don't even know what I said to them. It was probably like not good, but uh, you know, like I drifted from there to other stuff, but I eventually found a forum, which now only exists on archive.org and like posted there for I don't know seven or eight years where I and I like sort of self-mythologized a bit of my time there and I was able to go back and look through it on archive like I feel like one out of every 10 posts it was archived most of them are like dead links now but I was able to look at enough that I realized that like my first sort of iteration of myself on there I was like you know talking like Eminem or something and just being like, I would have like rap battle posts with people where we tried to write out like rap disses to each other. Dude, that's so cool. That's so <laughs> funny, man. That's like perfect, cringy, early adolescence, no one's watching character formation stuff. Very oh, easy yeah. to self mythologize. And also, like, I mean, I'm listening to you say that. And I mean, I think this is sort of what felt like magical about it is that you could mm. you could do like a test run of who you thought you were going to be. I was yeah, that's what I learned. I thought I was like this one person through that whole experience. That's what my memory of it has been ever since. But then I looked and I would see like I was initially this guy who was like totally. talking so much shit and was like, "Oh yeah, I'm like really cool and no one knows if I'm white or black cuz I'm on a forum." So ha ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, yes. And like that was the initial like really stupid middle school me. And then I would like just tell everyone like, I hate this place. I'm leaving like screw you all. And then I would show back up like a month later with like a new screen name and people would eventually realize it's me. But I have like an entirely new persona and I like type in a completely different way. Um, I'm now much more intellectual seeming like, uh -huh. you know what I mean? And that really like, I'm now a smart guy and I've left behind that sad, mm. sad state you initially found me in. Yes. And yes. Yeah. Was, climbing, just, climbing up out of the cave. Yeah. It was so good to see that and to be like, yeah, I was like stupid and funny and it's good to laugh at myself. And like, it was great that I had a place where no one was watching except other morons who were exactly the same as me so that we could all be in this little puddle together and like kind of do stuff like that where, you know, like to this day, like hardly anyone has ever heard of that site or knows about it or anything that went on there. And in that way, I think it reminded me a lot of when Chris Ott talked about like trying not to be seen. I forget what the name of the video was. Yeah, but... the, I think the um, 
the hiding. It's yeah, one the of his hiding. First, it's one of his first shallow rewards things. We'll put that in the show notes too. It's just so funny to think back to those moments when you're online doing that at a young age at a part where the internet feels super young mm. and you're beginning to live in public. It doesn't yeah. feel like that, but that's what you are doing. And I, I could just, to me, the comic version of it, like the, the funny version of it that makes you really feel a generational shift is the idea of like someone going through their old forum posts on a semi-dead website and Springsteen's glory days plays in the background. <laughs> <laughs> you know? like Yeah, totally, totally. That's how it feels. And so we watched two documentaries. The first one is We Live in Public. And We Live in Public is about the dot-com boom and one of its singular figures, this guy, Josh Harris, Joshua Harris, who's a total weirdo. He's a Gen X archetype. Mm. That, so we're talking about how we grew up with a certain level of interaction online where you could try on different looks. You know, you could you were be, anonymous, so you could disappear and come back come in like back. a totally new garb and... It was, it was like an interesting play of masks. And it was semi-dynamic. Even mm. if you weren't in the real world, you could, you know, you were interacting with real people. You might not know everything about them. They might be lying to you about who they are, but you were still interacting with them. You know, David Foster Wallace writes about this. Certain other Gen X writers write about this. The whole phenomenon of the latchkey kid, things like that. That's who Josh Harris is. He has a lot of siblings but he's very much left alone as a kid and he's raised by the TV that he says that he's very candid in the documentary about the impact that had on him. And I think it's <laughs> a very lucid articulation of what he became is that he was somebody whose whole idea of socializing was formatted by the three or four major television channels that he was plopped down to watch all day. When you're from a large family and you're the youngest kid, your parents are usually tired by the end of that and your siblings are busy. And so you're left to your own devices. Yeah, I definitely, my parents weren't like absent in any way, but I like barely had friends through a lot of periods of my early life. And so like my friend was like television, you know, mm -hmm. eventually video games. I watched like so much TV. That was pretty much the primary way that I had any like good feelings at all in my life because I just hated going to school. You know what I mean? So yeah, was, like it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I think that really only changes as an archetype because of the Internet. And mm -hmm. we were in that sweet spot where we were becoming adolescents as it was becoming available to kids from our parents tax bracket. Mm hmm. You know, um, so Josh Harris takes some classes after he moves to New York, understands that the Internet's coming, is basically visionary in how he understands it. He really understands how it's going to change human life, how it provides market data and things like this. When I was watching the documentary, I really felt the wisdom of the French word for computer, l'ordinateur, the ordering machine more than the computing machine. I think that the French are a little bit more copped on to what it actually does. Uh, and That was really what fascinated me was 
very it gives hardly any time but when he talks about how he realized that businesses need numbers to justify budgets so he just created a business that would just generate like data and numbers and stuff for you to look at on like pieces of paper with graphs and stuff and you could totally feel that like it did not matter what the numbers said except that they justified like asking for money from someone else who would be impressed by the numbers and the fact that he knew that like at that time was just like yeah of course you're successful yeah exactly and it also helps you realize like how insane the dot-com bubble was i mean it created these multi-millionaires in the double digits i mean josh harris flips a few companies and suddenly has 80 million dollars he's like 30 yeah or something like that the people had no idea what to do with that money or how to run a company no and it was happening in new york that's an, another important thing is this happens in New York. This is part of finance. This is a part of this whole other thing that's happening. It's not yet the California ideology. And I think that yeah. that's, I mean, it's in part that way, but it's, we don't think about New York when we think about this stuff anymore, but New York is where a lot of it was happening at this time. And New York in the nineties is a very different scene. Like Giuliani is newly mayor trying to crack down on the city trying to impose order after what's been like maybe a decade and a half of like decay and stuff like this. And I mean, really sort of turns it into the filthy Epcot center that (laughs) it is now. (laughs) And, you know, totally devoid in a lot of places of the life that it once had. And Harris starts to understand that the simulation of life aspect the things that the internet makes achievable are huge and they're about media. So he launches a company called Sudo and Sudo is basically Twitch before Twitch. It is exactly what Twitch is, except for the gaming aspect. It's live streaming before broadband news, stuff like that culture that has yeah, a little chat the window. Sucked. Yeah, right. they were at like 10 frames a second or some shit. Like it was just a, really bad, but mm. cutting edge, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I remember trying to watch stuff like that. It was cool that it could happen. I one thing I noticed is I think one of the co-hosts of a show on there who didn't get interviewed or anything, she later ends up on Tech TV, which is like a big cable network where they I have to imagine that like tech TV and G4 TV, which was another like video game tech centered network on cable, which they eventually merged and then died and are now trying to be revived actually trying to ride that nostalgia wave, I guess. I have to imagine they saw the stuff that was going on there and were like, Oh, we can put this on TV and like do totally. pretty well. And I think that's pretty, I think that's what happened. Looking at the kind of programming pseudo had, I think it was too early for pseudo but some people in cable realized they could actually make that kind of thing work without mm-hmm. the cutting edge new technology thing. But like, let's just get some random, like interesting, charismatic people together who aren't necessarily from the broadcasting business and let them just talk about like things they think are cool. And it yeah, sort of a, like it's held a, its own for a bit, which was interesting to see. Yeah. It's sort of, it's the re-articulation of the MTV model. Yeah. I, it's interesting. Josh becomes famous for, putting together i guess the most amazing parties ever in new york city and to me it's so like weird to watch these young women sort of like surrounding him and fawning over him in pseudo which i guess was sort of like a known quantity to them at least in that world 
and being like, oh my God, can I be on pseudo? I'll like lick the floor to be on pseudo. Cause you're looking at it from such a remove that you're like, he's just kind of like a weird sort of slightly creepy dude who's like throwing parties and like holding a vial of Viagra in his hand at one point talking about like, I've got the Viagra, right? You're like, dude, what? Like, yeah, it's so debauched. The whole experience is so debauched and it really shows you how powerful money is. Oh yeah. But then he, you know, he used this to get a bunch of people on pseudo and like find interesting, cool people that'll come on. And yeah, the parties were casting calls. He was so canny. He was very savvy about that. Yeah. So pseudo it's a thing. It doesn't really end up going anywhere. Uh, the company eventually dies just because like the internet doesn't have the capacity to like do good streaming video yet. And no one, they didn't really have a business plan beyond some morons going to come by us and no moron ever came by and bought them. So they went away, but he was kind of done with pseudo. He had already cashed out before that happened and moved on to what was the subject of a wired article. We both read as well as a pretty big part of the documentary, which was his, experimental like art project called quiet we live in public well the first one's called quiet and it's the underground bunker which transitions into a much more domestic version called we live in public but the oh my bad i thought it was quiet colon we live in public no 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 it's just that it's quiet is the first um iteration of what he wants to do and quiet is it's going to be laborious to explain what the fuck this idea was because it's so insane i get tired thinking about it so basically this guy has like 80 million dollars and he doesn't know what to do with it and most people put it in index funds spend it on cocaine do a bunch of other stuff he's of course spends a bunch of it on cocaine and decides to create this experiment towards the end of 1999 in the last few weeks of the year called quiet and he hires a bunch of artists to come in and trick out this bunker that has these sleeping pods that have you're basically being monitored at all times and you can monitor other people at all times everything has a screen it's all happening all at once and there are communal meals everything's free if you stay there and basically a bunch of performance artists and all sorts of people decide to engage in this. There's a gun range down there. They decide to stay for a few weeks. He offers to pay them $100,000 a piece if you can hold out until like a certain time. The end of the, New Year's Day, I think. The end of New Year's Day. And the public can come in and watch. And it's basically like supposed to be a special economic zone for being a totally decadent piece of shit edgelord yeah it everything like is visible so you see footage of people like chatting while taking a shit or like the shower i don't know he's got this whole thing about like even cameras like up under the toilet so you can literally watch someone's piss stream and see their genitals or whatever he's got this very strange yeah. <laughs> like scatological voyeur <laughs> element to who he is that uh, to me is like i mean to me that's like truly perverse yeah <laughs> like the other stuff is sort of i can understand in even like a Sadian 
type way or you know <laughs> something like that but the, the really camera works. trained on your anus is like yeah so you can watch someone's asshole quiver as they pinch a loaf is <laughs> like so nuts to me yeah it's that's... beyond the pale so yeah like the shower is kind of like a stage with this weird kind of clear Geodesic. surrounding yeah so you can look in and the the documentary portrayed it pretty much as like the most decadent thing you've ever seen like Total they make it seem like everyone showed up and then immediately there was like random sex and like just craziness going on and drugs and but reading the wired article he kind of paints it to be a bit more like it started out and they really clamped down on it and made sure that it didn't get too out of hand because they were worried about the police coming before they could get it off the ground so it's actually described there as remarkably sort of civil for the first like 10 days or so. Mm -hmm. um, people are kind of enjoying the free food and hanging out, but nothing crazy is going on yet. And it seems like that builds up later. Um, one aspect worth visiting is everyone had like blank appended to artist as their title there was like artillery artists who supposedly set up the gun range right interrogation artists. interrogation artists which um, they had the, they had this interrogation booth i mean one of the most stomach turning parts of the documentary to me are the interrogation scenes which they consult with cia experts it has this whole stasi element to it and there's this one where they're really just leaning into a woman about her suicide attempt and the guy's like, mimic with your finger the speed with which the blade moved across your flesh. And she traces the scar straight down her forearm and then just silently weeps. And I was just thinking, what the fuck am I watching? Yeah, that was like kind of stomach turning to realize that like this is how totally unhinged they were. Like they like... Like, what are you, you know, like, what are you doing here? I don't, you know what I mean? It's so crazy. And the, yeah. the interrogation was like a pretty central facet, supposedly. Like, mm -hmm. had to get interrogated to come in, but it seems like they would also kind of interrogate people randomly afterwards or something. And that was a whole, like, feature of this, because I guess the idea was supposed to be total transparency, and that would include, like, we're going to get into everything about you we can before mm -hmm. we let you in. And the interrogation artists sort of gleefully participating, I guess. And it's weird. It's hard to put together in your head exactly what was going on. There supposedly were nightly meetings where Josh and like the crew would basically discuss what was going on. And it was subject to a somewhat of a degree of like control, I think from them, or at least they manipulated things to go in the direction that Josh wanted them to go in at any given time because he had something in mind. I think he was going like to make a movie or something out of this. Like he had a film crew there most of the time and he was mainly concerned with capturing footage and having the right things happen at the right time so that he could then have this movie. And the idea was like, you know, you can have everything for free except for the footage. We own that and we're going to sell that back to you, which, you know, like totally, yes, he captured the business model much earlier than it existed. Yeah, totally. And he predicts sort of the social thing where he says, you know, people aren't going to just want their 15 minutes of fame for their whole life. They're going to want it every day. Yeah. And people are going to willingly give away all of their privacy, all of this to be seen and to see others. 
which I think is basically correct in terms of, I don't know, the terms of service, a lot of these websites and stuff like that, that we use every day. So he's right about that. But I think the important thing is the ambiguities of what is meant by freedom in this context. So Mm -hmm. he's orchestrating all of this stuff, ratcheting up. They have this police state there. There's a total transparency. You can do drugs. The public can come in. It starts to get especially crazy towards the end when he has all of these performance artists who are, of course, have their whole, their whole psychologies, their personalities are about enduring this type of stuff. But he also doesn't want to have to actually pay them 100K a piece. And so he's trying to ratchet things up and attract Giuliani and all of the cops to finally shut it down. He apparently invited a bunch of politicians to come in there and play risk and then made sure people were shooting guns that they could hear. Mm-hmm. And they just like got spooked and left, but no police came. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's one guy that says, you know, people couldn't handle the freedom uh, or whatever. They all started to go crazy. And then you start asking yourself, like, what type of freedom is this? You know, what is meant by freedom here when all of these things are engineered, when it's created like this? We often take like freedom as an absence of restraint. But I don't know if it's ever that. It always exists in a context. It's always bounded. And as I saw people sort of trying and failing to articulate what they really meant about that and how that actually worked and how they, I don't know, theorized it for lack of a better word, there really seemed a poverty in how to handle that scenario because there just hadn't. I mean, freedom just seems synonymous with a level of indulgence or something like that. But even that was encouraged and stoked by Josh behind the scenes and all sorts of stuff. And people were more or less aware of that. And that to me reflects, or not reflects, but um, preempts a lot of the way we talk about social media now and how that works. But eventually Josh Harris succeeds. And after New Year's, SWAT teams come in kick everybody out, are generally appalled. It seems like a nightmare. The whole thing gets closed down. He sort of bitterly washes his hands of it, goes on a cruise with a bunch of people who he still likes from pseudo and from that experience, one of whom is this woman. His last name, I think her name is like Tanya Corin or something like that. Mm. They fall in love and he decides to do quiet in miniature in his apartment with his girlfriend again with the fucking camera while you take a shit stuff and yeah, camera, camera in the toilet and they live stream their entire life together everything everything the whole thing it's called we live in public that's the project uh predictably it totally ruins their relationship and one of the hardest to watch scenes was in their like when their relationship dies it's just so like it's dark in a completely different way from what you saw in quiet like yeah there's a very gen x sort of like nihilism yeah that's happening in quiet that has to do with um sort of a dead transgressivism that maybe meant something in the 80s but doesn't mean anything anymore but Mm. it's all people know how to do you know, what isn't acceptable at some point, you know, but what happens in, we live in public is Josh isn't really in control anymore. And the audience that's watching sort of turns on him, especially after he basically assaults his girlfriend. 
And they like the girl more. Like, whoa, Josh, you didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah, they didn't see that coming. A and bunch also, of people watching your house all day are more interested in her than you. <laughs> and there's this weird... His favorite show growing up was Gilligan's Island. And one of the things the documentary does well is articulate how each of these projects is like him trying to create Gilligan's Island in his own life. Uh, for younger listeners who didn't grow up watching shit like the monkeys and Hogan's heroes and Gilligan's Island and bewitched like I did Gilligan's Island is about a bunch of post-war suburban white people who get lost on a cruise and end up stranded on an Island. And it's all about the hijinks that go on there. And Harris even adopts like this clown persona called lovey at some point that looks eerily like his mother who's emotionally distant and one of the characters from Gilligan's Island, the older maternal figure. And so he's always trying to create this whole environment and he's almost kind of honest about that. Yeah. But again, he doesn't really anticipate the way it's going to turn on him and the relationship ends, the dot com bubble bursts. He loses all of his money live on camera. There's a comment section. It's super dark. It was interesting how right before their relationship totally ends, after they fight, they both go to their own rooms and start chatting with the like viewers and their viewers end up taking Tanya's side and they're like, make him sleep on the couch or whatever. And she kind of talks a little bit about it too. How like even before that it had turned into like them kind of off in their own world with those comments, sort of like, okay, let's see the feedback to what just happened. And, you know, she realized like no relationship could survive something like that. No, she's, even though she's much younger than him, is sort of like predictably emotionally more thoughtful and copped on to what's going on. There's something about him, even though he's older, that is more immature than her, which endears him to her, which is Mm -hmm. an interesting dynamic. You know, she's got this, my understanding of her from a documentary, so who knows? But from what I see of her, even when she was younger, because she's talking about this stuff 10 years after it happens by the time the documentary comes out, she has this capacity to accept people for who they are and situations for what they are that speaks to someone who's pretty stable mm. in their understanding of themselves. But with Josh, there's no there there. He can't disaggregate what the performance of Josh Harris is from who Josh Harris might actually be at some authentic level. I think that that was his attraction to these performance artists that end up staffing pseudo and end up attending quiet. When no one's looking at you and you want them to, you'll do anything to get them to. And I think that was sort of his fascination with these transgressive things. Because sometimes he seems utterly shallow, petty, incapable of understanding what he's doing. And then other times he seems very savvy and copped on. Now that might be true of anybody. They just seemed exaggerated in his case because he's woefully under-socialized. And it's clear by the end of the documentary, he's spent his whole life relatively unloved. And he retcons the relationship with the girlfriend as a pseudo-girlfriend. Yeah, like that relationship is always fake. Like... Yeah, it was never gonna end. Yeah, it was never was, gonna go well. And I think that there's a grain of truth there. 
in that there is probably this quiet part of him that engages in the we live in public thing because he knows it's going to wreck the relationship because it's the part of him that is frozen mm. and has never felt love and doesn't know how to experience it and needs to mediate it in a way that puts it at hazard so that he can retcon it later. Mm-hmm. And that's the sense. And, you know, he tries to come back at that point, MySpace, Facebook, all of these things are sort of taking off and it doesn't work. He ends up coaching a basketball team in Ethiopia so that creditors can't find him. This is like years after he just goes to an apple farm and lives there by himself and shoots I really guns. tried to understand, yeah, how he spent five years farming apples by himself. Maybe and, we'll never know, but... Maybe- Maybe we'll never know. I mean, he's a man of mystery. So the general thrust of the documentary, which comes out in 2010, is sort of about what happens to people with their information, this sort of transparency problem. Documentary overplays how debauched quiet really was. I mean, it needs drama. That's fine. I'm not upset with it. I think that the version from that Wired piece that's part of a book I now want to read about Josh Harris and this whole thing reminds me of the latest Purge movie that came out. And how when the, it's it's like the prequel and they go to run the purge and like some part in New York that's an island and no one kills each other and they're all really pissed for a while. They're just partying and fucking and doing drugs and stuff like people probably would. Uh, and so they have to basically instigate all of the crime to like do a proof of concept. I think that that's sort of like what happens at Quiet. But the documentary shares all of these concerns that really reach a fever pitch in the documentary that came out this year, The Social Dilemma, which is an absolutely tiring, humble brag by all of these midwits who pioneered social media doing their confession about how they've destroyed democracy. Uh by creating the like button yeah it's and definitely people like a... shoshana zuboff who don't really know how these business bottles work but still get lauded for an 800 page book about it called surveillance capitalism being like oh, this is unprecedented they're selling human futures just like you'd sell commodities i'm like i'm sorry but selling commodities futures is selling human futures. <laughs> like what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> yeah there is i think pretty much most of the expert like talking heads were all involved in monetization of these different platforms like there was a guy who was like i got brought onto facebook and they were like figure out how this is going to make money and he decided okay the most sensible and most streamlined model for doing that is the ad model where this is free to you but we sell you to advertisers in a multitude of ways and we all win and we're all happy like you got something for free we got money advertisers got to advertise to you and like from his perspective, like no problem. And it's only, I think, they eventually start to apparently realize that there's this whole attention economy thing going on where it's not just that like you're getting something you like for free and we're getting to advertise to you for it. And that's like an equal exchange sort of thing. But it's more of the like people are seemingly addicted to using these things often at their own personal emotional expense or the expense of their time with their families, which is what the Pinterest guy uh, brought up, like hiding in his pantry, sitting on Pinterest or something. Well, you know, he was no longer like hanging out with his kids. 
So I, they seems like they're like, okay, then we realize like something's very wrong with this. And we pioneered these things to be more effective at capturing attention because advertisers love that. So it's better for us and we have more control, et cetera. But then eventually we started to realize like, oh, this is, this is quite bad. And now, you know, it has totally like the Russiagate spin on it too. Like Russia can use thing. Russia can legally manipulate people with these things with something they brought up. It was a quick like nod to that part of the, the, the like yeah, canon. They totally have the whole, which, which is, <laughs> which is like, which is again, a totally crock of shit story cooked up by the Hillary campaign to explain how they lost to a game show host. Yeah. And you, there's this whole sort of feeling like I think the guy who was part of the like team, the team that invented the like button was like, we just wanted to spread positivity in the world. And everyone's story about it is kind of like, we thought we were doing a really good thing. At least that's what they're trying to sell you in this documentary. Or at the very least, some of them were like, I thought I was doing a neutral thing and it turned out I was doing a bad thing. And so now I'm here to talk to you about why it's bad and why we should all be worried about it. And it's, just super interesting that like there's a level of like i had good intentions so it's not my fault like pretty pervasive across the whole thing because when you saw earlier articles and stuff about this from like ex-facebook engineer talking about his role in facebook stuff from like a decade ago or so maybe a little bit less they were always worded as like yeah like we knew we were doing something pretty fucked up and that's why I eventually left because it was like pretty obvious to me that we were just going to keep heading in the direction that we were going in. And there's a lot less mm-hmm. like self mythologization. It was just sort of like, yeah, we're playing with people's lives in a pretty weird way. That's not at all transparent to the people involved. But in the documentary, there was never a sense that anyone felt like, Oh, I was like copying a six figure or more salary for being like a VP and directing all of this stuff. And thus my motivations weren't purely like social good, but were in fact like fiduciary <laughs> at some level. Yeah. I mean, and it's totally, it's, it's like, okay, so there's an attention economy problem. They built these things to be manipulative, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, okay, yeah, like I can see that I've worked with high schoolers. Like that feels true at some level, you know, I'll grant that. And then there's just like, you know, and that's why we need to be information supervisors so that it doesn't destroy democracy and we can moderate all the content you see. And no one has any ideas that we don't like that aren't true, unlike the conspiracy theory that isn't true, that the mainstream media has totally been peddling. You know, this has been the basic response by these people who are of the same class as everyone who runs the legacy media, like that fucking insane Facebook is a doomsday machine piece I read in The Atlantic which is nuts. And it's basically like, well, we just all need to like moderate the information so that the discourse is pure so that we can have democracy. And I'm like, were you guys, were some of you guys like not responsible for being stenographers during the Iraq war? Like when was this moment that you're talking about when this all really changed, you know, what you start to see is this idea that there are the people who decide what's true and then there are the people who respond to it and that those are sort of the, that's the tiered system of the information democracy as they see it, because these people don't really see democracy as what we talked about with Kyung Min's son, where you exchange roles of leadership, you know, and, and things like that. It's really just a discursive, like Habermasian thing. We talked about this with Olivier Jutel as well. And so this is all they're concerned about 
is that it's like totally abstracted from any real social conditions or the institutions that actually make a, an electoral democracy. It is strictly discursive. And so they want to be the information supervisors. They want to be the philosopher kings who spend their time contemplating the good so that everybody else gets to like hit the like button and not really participate in trying to understand what's going on in the society around them. That's already been done for you. All you have to do is hit like and subscribe. Yeah, it was kind of I always come back to what you mentioned too. Like whenever I see somebody really like clutching their pearls about how the way that Facebook has allowed false narratives to spread, which endangered a lot of lives. And I always think like, it's just totally like widely known that the New York times peddled falsehoods that allowed us to go to war in Iraq, just totally uncritically were like the mouthpiece of the state department but like no one gives a shit about that at all. Like no one fucking cares about that at all. So that's no. fine. And we've got but, this totally like a historical version of like, oh, well, there's like Nazis online. It's just like, dude, do you remember how many white supremacist terrorist attacks there were in the 90s under Clinton? Like get out of here. Yeah, it's completely made up as what you eventually have to come to. Like they have invented a world where things are set up in such a way that they're required to stop the bad things from happening. And they appeal, I think they appeal directly to the people who think the nineties were good because they don't remember it. Yeah. And it's sort of like, like we need to get back in control because then people will like vote for people like George Bush or Bill Clinton again, who we all know now are like pretty nice guys. Like they're normal. That's Bill the across Clinton the aisle the stuff. Appetites. Yeah. yeah, that's the across the aisle stuff we miss or just guys like that. And it's just like, doesn't make any sense. None of it really makes any sense. I don't think it's meant to. I just, I think it's more than anything, like an affective appeal of like, this is good info that makes you feel good. And like, we're going to keep the good info stream going and like the bad info stream, that's like bad. And like, it makes you feel bad. So we're going to stop that. And right. Totally. This is the oligarchy of sob stories thing that I talk about where you have all these people who've been in charge of running something and they basically f fucking cry to you on camera about how they had such good intentions and they didn't really mean for it to be this way. And they're so sad now that they've destroyed a several hundred year old Republic with the like button and the share button and whatever. And then you're supposed to just not say like, what exactly were you responsible for when you were working there? Weren't your responsibilities basically fiduciary? Like, what is it that you're apologizing for here? Did you even have this impact? Or am I just supposed to feel sorry for you because you had such noble intentions and because you have the moral clarity to talk about it on camera now that I don't ask any questions further about what this actually does, what... CIA goons you have working on this fucking documentary and like what your basic finance portfolio probably look like looks like right now you know what's interesting to me is they sort of vaguely gesture towards some sort of anti-monopoly stuff they're just like well we need to break up the monopolistic incentives blah, 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 blah. and then and then during the credits it's just like here are things you can do you can do to improve your relationship with social media so they responsibilize you. Feel bad for me. I fucked all this up. I didn't mean to. Now it's your problem. And your moral worth will be understood by your ability to forgive me 
and take my advice because I'm one of the good ones. I walked away. And started another thing where I get paid. And it started some NGO. <laughs> yeah. Where, you know, I basically just funnel money to the DNC who doesn't give a shit. As we've learned this year, they've just passed a stimulus bill that does fucking nothing for people. Yeah. And I'm supposed to feel bad for these people. Also, this just creates double standards. Like, I'm just not supposed to try to figure out who's actually at fault, who's actually responsible or responsible for what. Yeah, there's a lot left unsaid, too. Like, there's a part where they talk about how Google doesn't have any metric for truth other than like the click or the view. And so they can't be trusted to tell us what's true. Yeah. Like, that's they the can't big, be like, trusted. that's the big platonic shift argument there. Right. Yeah. Like, we need the cool. philosopher Kings who really know what the good is. Cause they don't really say it though. They just sort of are like heavily implying it the whole time that like someone else needs to step in, but it's not, no one really comes out and advocates for themselves to personally be in charge of anything like that. It's sort of just like this quiet suggestion through the whole thing that like, I don't know who we can trust, but it sure doesn't sound like it's those guys who currently run everything. I don't know. I'm just going to keep talking to Congress until something changes one day and we'll see. And it, by it the way, very... by the way, my name is pronounced Tristan, not yeah. Tristan. Have you guys ever been to Ibiza? <laughs> He makes a, oh, he even says that like one of the things that bothered him was he realized that like the whole world is in some way totally plugged into Facebook and simultaneously the people who are in charge and running that are like 30 something year old white men, you know, with like college degrees or whatever. And it's like, that's absolutely true. But like nothing about that has changed since you've left and started your new thing either. Like, the core makeup of your group is not any more representative of anyone else than it ever was before. So it was almost sort of like, now that I've made the formal gesture to my whiteness and my richness, yeah, we will well, continue also, to constitute my new organizations in much the same way with much the same outlook. Uh, but I, I have gestured. Right. And I can't stand that to some level because also some of these higher ups that decided things that they interview are not white men. They're not. And so it's like, yeah, that might be generally true in some way, but that's, that has no explanatory power. None. Yeah. If you're looking at who they're interviewing, who are who people who are like, I'm responsible for literally doing X, Y, or Z thing that is now part of your everyday life. And you're just like, okay, I'm watching a woman say that. So. Yeah. No, the much more interesting parts that they all most likely went to like pretty good colleges. Like that says a lot yeah. more about them as a group of people than anything else. Like that's 100%. what ties them together. Yeah, that's what makes them the class. I mean, they didn't go like find some wicked smart guy who's like a janitor to come be a part of their team meetings. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you like them apples? Yeah, yeah. They, they didn't, didn't bring that. that perspective in. No, the level of self congratulation that operates in that documentary, the level of moral coercion that takes place, and the total lack of like philosophical clarity—it's just unserious. It's nothing but a pathetic appeal. It is nothing but pathetic appeal. Mm -hmm. And it's frankly despicable. And we'll wrap up here, but I want to just articulate that this is sort of the long tail of the platonic shift that starts to begin with the initial responses to things like the New Deal, mass production, mass movements, 
and things like that. And then especially from the Cold War till now, if you guys listen to the Kyungmin Sun episode, you know what I'm talking about. But this is how these people argue for themselves to continue to run things somehow, even after they fucked it all up. That's the most amazing thing about this whole documentary is that like we fucked it all up anyway. We're also it's conscience. Don't ask how that can be true at the same time. Uh, totally wild. And just like with the quiet experiment and stuff like that in the way it's portrayed in the documentary, you know, it's just not that bad. (laughs) It's nowhere near as bad as these people need you to think it is, you know, are there coercive and manipulative elements to it? Like, yeah. Is that as troubling to me as like, I don't know, citizens United as a piece of law? No, no or gerrymandering or whatever, whatever, like all of these things that actually affect the structures of our Republic as it's been handed down to us. I'm sorry, but the like button just doesn't compare. It doesn't compare to the war on terror. No matter what these people want to tell you, it is not a doomsday machine. Maybe it's a problem. Maybe there are things wrong with it. I think that's probably true, but Ask yourself for whom this is a crisis and who people are asking to solve the crisis. Yeah, I think from my position, it like their problem with it, seemingly what they're hinting at a few at a few points is not exactly that. Like there's a little bit of the personal aspect, which is probably one of the worst, which is like people who develop serious personal and like emotional problems because of the fact that so much of their world is mediated by a thing that just makes them feel horrible every single day like that. It's not as big of a problem for me, but I have seen it in other people and I know that can be pretty destructive and it's plugged into much bigger things than on a personal level. And that it seemed like they were like, yeah, that's bad. But the worst thing to them was that like uh, initially Facebook and Google and whatever, whoever ran any of these things, like, since they're operating kind of on a like whatever grabs the most attention is fine. They're then laying out for you a narrative that that allowed like falsehoods to propagate because falsehoods, false news travels fast and people like the falsehood more than they like the truth. So that got more clicks. So suddenly you have ballooning conspiracy theories and stuff. And so they're trying to say that like the profit motive was wrong. We need truth motive or something to like guide these. And like Emmett's saying here, like, what does that mean? You know, like there's pretty obvious, large epistemological problems with the idea that you're going to be able to give me the truth. And to some yeah. extent it's, I don't know. I would almost rather a bunch of false narratives or something in their eyes, because at least then I can like, have a range of things to look at rather than sort of one completely like power subservient milk toast ideology being served to me through only official channels by only official accounts that have been thoroughly vetted by only official fact checkers. And that's the kind of thing I think they want. And to some extent, I don't really think that it's possible, but probably we're going to see more and more pushes in that direction. Like if you look at what Twitter has done over the course of the last few years. Like they're more and more trying to move in that kind of a direction while not hurting the bottom line. 
like they'll find you know whatever way they can to sort of do what they have to do like police their content in the way that they're going to be expected to while still trying to maintain the the mass usership it's tough there's a lot of things we don't know and i think that this was an opportunity for them to bring on people like psychiatrists and stuff who have actually studied like the effect that our relationship to cell phones and things have on us. And there's a lot of really interesting work being done on that. And it's something that we could actually say like, yeah, like as a country, we should be talking about this and like what we would like to see happen and like whether or not that's something that could be a political issue, you know, at least that would be the ideal thing. But instead it was kind of, you know, sort of just a propaganda piece run to make us all feel a little bit more comfortable with like content policing. Mm-hmm. And to also make us feel like we're the ones who are quote unquote failing, whatever that's supposed to mean. Nobody's worse on that in that documentary, in my opinion, than that Jared Lanier fuck. I, I could not fucking stand that guy. He really like, I'm not going to get into a was thing. Was he about the, the AI guy? Yeah. With the dreadlocks. I was just like, this is basically this is sort of like the high-minded Malthusian perspective on human life that's like my pessimism is actually a form of moral seriousness or whatever like that's the big vibe I was getting from him I'm that's interesting I wonder why you got that I feel like to me he was doing a like pretty legacy sort of like like defend yourself only use free software kind of thing you know like you're the product stop like using these things they're evil or whatever like live outside of that system but maybe i missed something like kind of about what he was saying so well i think you know here, here's another way to think about it right yeah is when i'm hearing this i'm like okay but entire economies are now built on this there are people mm. whose livelihoods depend on it. What are you talking about here? Who gets to just walk away from this is a good question to ask. Yeah. And this is just a decision that you individually make and like why you should delete this, like blah, blah, blah. Like, I mean, it to me felt like when Matt Chrisman from Chapo Trap House is like, log off, all of you need to log off. And it feels kind of like, Everyone needs to flee the discursive space except for me who makes all of my money off of it and is actually dependent on you being in this discursive space. You know, okay. Like that's what felt something didn't smell right for me. You know, he's like, well, you know, we probably don't solve climate change, like blah, 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 unless we can really like scrub all the falsehoods out of everything and like do things the right way. And I was like, most news about climate change and like what renewables can do or what you believe is true. And that shit doesn't fucking work. So who the fuck are you to tell me that I shouldn't be involved in any of this and that I should walk away and be, let it be left to whoever these managers are that are saying that they're going to run everything. I see. That makes sense. I think I just saw it as coming from the like, the really long stretch of like a certain orientation towards for-profit software in terms of like things that started before the social media era in terms of an ideology. I felt like that was, I recognized a lot of that in what he was saying just in terms of like, yeah, you got to protect yourself and your data out there. And I think at the end of the day, it's 
um, you might say it's a non-civic view because it's uh, like it's more of a like um, how would you put it like it's, more it's pretty pessimistic yeah it's, it's kind of like I've pretty much given up on the fact that any of this could be changed and I'm now entering survival mode yeah and what I don't like is the fact that there's this sort of I mean, I don't like that it's the non-civic view. And I think maybe it was true. You can make these arguments about, you know, don't use for-profit software, like blah, 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 before all of this happened. But now you can't abstract it from the current power dynamics that are literally being implied in the documentary. And I think that to me is like the most telling thing is that when you start to put these things together, what these people are really asking for is like some sort of epistocracy where those who know run things and those who don't know simply do things. And that's how that feels saying like, well, only you can protect yourself or like 10 reasons why you should delete your social media account or blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, I'm sure there's something to it. I, I don't think he's stupid. And I agreed generally with some of the things he said about how it's bad for you and bad for the world or whatever. But again, are you telling me that there is a global mass problem and the only solution you can think of is I delete my Twitter and that that's the way to solve it? And he's like, and if you can convince even like 10 people to do it, like then I've done enough. And I was like, really? Mm -hmm. What you're selling me is a global societal problem? If your best-selling book you got to go on the view for convinces at least 10 people to do that, then you've done your job. That's like the fucking tuxedo mask meme. None of these people are willing to take more responsibility on their own terms. That was my big takeaway. What that documentary is, is it's an implicit argument for the epistocracy that they want and a big sob story virtue signal on why we're why they're the ones to listen to. And that's what I couldn't stand about it. Yeah, it completely conflates the fact that logging off is the solution to a personal problem. And when the documentary is called The Social Dilemma. Yeah, like if you log off, then it's because you want to get away from something that's harming your personal life. Like that's probably the only problem that I can say that will solve with any certainty. I don't think that any one of us logging off is going to have anything to do with the direction that the actual systems are going in. And that sort of should be pretty obvious, but they conflate it in a really interesting way where it makes it seem like just the aggregate of enough personal choices are going to change things like, Oh, enough people will stop using Facebook that they'll willingly submit to like a different regime of data control. You know, Like what, you know, I don't know. It all seems like totally half-baked to me and the way to construct it. And like Josh Harris, I think, was had the true psychological insight about willing to surrender privacy to see and be seen. And that is a problem. Unfortunately, the social dilemma really does nothing to articulate how that's going to be solved. But it does do a good job of giving you an idea of who thinks that they should solve it and why and also confirm for me that none of them are qualified despite the fact that they are the most qualified people in the room yeah only this can disqualify (laughs) yes only that can disqualify them yeah so i think that's it for us thank you guys for listening and we will catch you 
next week. Stay safe out there.